You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. Now your host, Steve Hills. All right, folks. Hey, uh, without any further ado, I want to introduce my guest, Dr. Heather Thompson-Day. Uh, Heather and I just met. We do not know each other personally, but I've been following Heather's work on Twitter for quite a while. Many of you know that I've found some of the, my best thinkers and best guests just by following them on Twitter. I know social media can be an absolute dumpster fire. It's true. But what's also true is it's become a great uh, democratizer of people's voices, people who have something to say. Heather is a communications expert. She has a doctorate in communications. She teaches communications and rhetoric at a, a university level. She's the author of multiple books, six books by my last count. Her latest book just came out this summer, It's Not Your Turn. We're almost certainly going to get into that. But I was particularly interested in getting some thoughts from Heather on communications, uh, on this generation of students and what she sees, what she loves, what challenges she thinks they face. So Heather, thanks so much for coming on the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Well, I am honored and happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, Heather, I should also mention that your hubby, Seth, is a pastor, and a lot of our audience are pastors, so I think there's a lot that you have to say to us. I want to get into communication because um, I'm fascinated by what happens between people when we have a narrative in our head but we're not able to hear what each other is saying because the narrative in our head is often taking over. I wonder if you just start there and give us some thoughts. Yeah, so there's actually a strategy I can give you to try to stop that narrative, and that's to put space in between your words. So as something I have my students do in class is between each word, I, I tell them, I want you to talk to the person next to you for set the timer, three minutes. But in between each word, I want you to put a two to three second pause. And what that does is it allows your brain and you'll notice actually first things are going to get way louder. Your brain is really going to tell you how uncomfortable you feel in those two to three second pauses. And then you'll start to feel more natural and find your groove. And what it's going to do is allow your brain to select the word you actually want to use instead of filler words that we tend to use that have no real meaning to the message. So instead of, this is actually a really good strategy to use if you're arguing with somebody. So instead of dumping everything that that person ever did wrong into the current argument, it makes you just say, I am hurt, right? And so now we get to the actual core of what I'm experiencing, and it also allows me to focus my own thoughts and reduce all the anxiety that I'm experiencing and say, what am I actually trying to say? And in as few words as possible, because I have to put a two to three second pause, how do I say that? So when you're coaching people to have, let's say, an argument or they're getting into an argument, are you actually coaching both sides to massively slow down their word usage and pace? Yes, I think we have to because we don't want to. What happens is emotions can take over yeah. and then we end up saying things that we don't even mean. And then while the other person is talking, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. So another thing that I would tell people to do is you 
can only talk for like 20 to 30 seconds, which your brain only remembers about 20 to 30 seconds worth of information anyway, pastors. So remember, as you're writing a sermon, this is important because I tell people, if you're writing a sermon, the only thing people are going to remember in your 30 minutes is 30 seconds. So how do you control what those 30 seconds were? And you can only do that if you really know what you're trying to say. And then you say it several different ways that they fully understand. Um, So something I tell people is, you're going to talk, each person can talk for 20 to 30 seconds. And then when you respond, you can only respond to something that that person just said. And that's how we practice active listening. I cannot bring up something that I wanted to say that was in my mind. I can only respond if it directly correlates to something that you just said in your 20 to 30 seconds. So you quite famously have a wonderful set of tweets and Instagrams about your marriage. Like it's just, yeah, it's just, I do that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's fun and funny. Uh, Is that how you and your husband also try to resolve conflict is, is extremely slowly. Um, If I am in control of myself, I will tell you, I am the worst. And he would probably agree with me on this. I am really good with everybody else. I am the worst with him. Nobody is able to make me angry quite as quickly as my husband can. Um, Also, there is nobody I am more dependent on in this world than my husband, right? So that's another thing in communication. Sometimes we misunderstand our need for somebody else's approval of our choices or our decisions. And we say, oh, I just have so much conflict with this person. Person, It's not that this relationship is inherently filled with conflict. It's that this person really matters. And so when they say something that goes against what I would want them to say, it matters. And I can't sleep and I have to talk about it. Um, so that is definitely the relationship that my husband and I have. And I would say a lot of the things I know to be true go out the window when I'm talking with him. Yeah. And once you've noticed that you've gone from zero to 60 in no yeah. time, uh, what's your best technique to, to start to de-escalate yourself? Oh, man, I am a big fan of saying, let's pause this conversation. And I'll say this is something he has probably taught me. I am somebody that wants to get closer to it and really understand and doesn't want to go to bed until we've hashed it all out. And he is somebody who will say, I am going to go on a five minute walk, but I will be back. And then we will finish this conversation. And what do you know? The conversation goes so much better that way, right? (laughs) So if we would just do that the first time, when you see yourself like, this is something that I feel really passionate about, and I feel my emotions starting to get upset, is it time for you to say, you know what, let's take a pause. I'm going to walk. We're big walkers. We walk all the time. You know how well our marriage is going based on how many laps you see going around the block. So if we say, I'm going to pause, I'm going to go do a lap, and I'm going to come back, that's been really healthy for us. Yeah, you could send your Fitbit in to the marriage council. Yeah, for an yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, Heather, would you talk to me as a pastor? I'm a white, tall, deep-voiced uh, male pastor. And I, I found uh, communication and power to be a struggle on both sides of the equation. When I speak, I carry more power than I feel. Mm. I'm aware of that because people have told me, but... Left to my own devices, I would not naturally be aware of the amount of power I carry. Mm. Uh, I was first made aware of it when I was a chaplain. It was a rude awakening to me because I had been 
affirmed all through a youth group for the very thing that can also do damage. Do you know what I mean? Like lighting up a room or infecting a room and I walk into it. At the same time, I also find that um, people caricature me in a way that's not human. They put expectations on me or I don't know how to finish that sentence, but I, I feel bullied, which sounds really strange to say as somebody who's in the center of power. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that from a communication point of view. Like, how do you make sense of both sides of that equation? I, I need you to give me examples. And so part of the problem with me or anybody who's deep into communication is I try to never assume I fully yeah. understand what somebody else is saying. Yeah. So ex give me an example of what you're saying so that I fully comprehend. Yeah, great. So on, on the side of me exuding power, I think there's just no escape as the hierarchically um, my gender uh, in, in a culture, in this culture, particularly in a church culture uh, where men still really have tremendous yeah, power, yeah, yeah. tremendous not being the best word for it. Um, then I open the Bible for people. So there's all this spiritual power. So I, I think, yeah. I think all of that on, on the side of where I'm sending power out on the side of where I'm feeling bullied, ironically, it's not uncommon that it's somebody that I know has been traumatized. Mm. Uh, maybe they've even come in because, for example, in our church, we try to create a culture of emotional health, of bringing doubt, skepticism, even hostility, all of the deconstructionist. I, I went through quite an intense deconstruction myself in the 90s after my chaplaincy. So we have great empathy for, for that world. Therefore, we do reach a lot of traumatized people who it feels like they're easily triggered by a number of things and, and then they... They can no longer see us for who we are. They're, they're infected. And then they're portraying onto me a caricature of who I really am. And sometimes it's not me. Sometimes I've seen it where they do it to another staff member, for example. But it is typically a hierarchical situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's enough of an example. but Yeah, it does help a lot. So you're saying, how? what do we do? How do we balance yeah, it? How, or... do we move to, how do we move toward each other? How do we listen to each other well? Yeah, I think, well, you use the word. I think the great equalizer of power is listening. And I think we spend a lot of time, especially in communication, thinking that the greatest communicators are the greatest orators, are the people, like you said, that can be dynamic and fill a room. And I personally believe the greatest communicators are the greatest listeners. Conversation is very rarely about you convincing other people of who you are. The reason my students sit in my office every single day in a line is not because I'm talking to them. It's because I'm listening to them, right? So the goal isn't ever for me as, as the communicator, and I, I think that this is helpful for a lot of pastors too. The goal for me in communication isn't to convince people of what I am, but to convince them of what they are. And the best way to do that is to listen to them right? To really slow down and ask those follow-up questions. That's how somebody really knows whether you're listening anyway. So, you know, somebody says, how are you doing? This just happened to me yesterday with a student. I say, how are you doing? It's kind of a phatic, we would call it in communication, a phatic communication statement. I'm not really asking, right? <laughs> I'm passing you and I'm acknowledging your presence. And so phatic communication says, hey, how are you? Right? And then I saw her face and she, she responded and I saw her face and I said, um, are you, 
are you okay? I don't know if you're okay. And then she responds. And I say, should we, do you want to go sit down? Do you want to talk? Do you have a minute? Right. So we, we show people that we're actually paying attention to their nonverbals, to their verbals by making time and making space for them. And I think that that really helps equalize the power dynamic. I think that that's what we see Christ do really well in scripture is make time for the people that are around him. And that I think is one of the greatest things you can do to even communicate a message, right? It's not just about the person who tells you, you matter. It's about the person who shows you, you matter by giving you time and space. Even if I disagree, it's letting you, it's sitting down and making time and saying this conversation matters to me so much so that I'm going to ask follow-up questions while we're having it. Um, I think that that, I think listening and um, in the book, Never Split the Difference, it's a fantastic book for anybody that wants to study more about communication. Chris Voss is a former FBI hostage negotiation um, director, and he talks a lot about the importance of, you know, asking people questions. He talks about tactical empathy, which is where this is actually really good. So sometimes people, especially today, like never have I heard this in Christianity before until recently where empathy is now this bad word. What that, the heck is Yeah, I can't even, I can't even, right. Are people just waking up one day saying, I need to pick on something, like, <laughs> it's crazy. I, I can't wrap my mind around how we got here, okay? However, let me listen to what is being said. So tactical empathy is something that hostage negotiators use, and it's to negotiate sometimes with terrorists, right? And what I think is very valuable is they try to look for listening to the motivations behind someone's behavior. That doesn't mean I'm talking to a terrorist if I'm, if I'm Chris Voss and I'm the director of the FBI. So this isn't that I'm now agreeing with your point of view. It's that in order to respond to it and move us somewhere in a dialogue, I have to fully understand it. And I can't do that if I'm not listening. And tactical empathy is where I'm actually intentionally trying to put myself, okay, where, how could somebody get here? What would this have looked like for them? And I have to listen to those cues so I understand it. So I just think if, if Chris Voss can practice tactical empathy with terrorists, I would think that Republicans and Democrats can do it with each other, right? Or complementarian, egalitarian. I would think that all of us can take the time to sit and listen and try to empathize with where somebody is and how they've come up with this perspective. Because the truth is we can't change what they think if we don't first understand it. Yeah, Heather, I'm, I'm listening to you as you share this, and what's screaming in my head is the, the current tragedy in the Southern Baptist Convention. I, yeah. I, I have no experience with the Southern Baptist Convention. I have a number of friends in it. Um, but as we're recording this, we're talking about the simple question, will they acknowledge abuse, rampant abuse, systemic abuse, or will they cover it up? What are you seeing in that? I'm assuming you are following along on some level. I follow because I'm on Twitter. And so I know way more about the SBC than I ever intended to. And I think I'm slightly jaded on almost every organizational power structure. 
right? And the SBC is the largest, um, I think, in the United States, right? Uh, yeah. So I just think the bigger we get, the more intentional we have to be. We know just on a personal level how power changes the brain. It's actually a drug. Like there should be warning labels on power. It, empathy, talking about empathy. Power like deadens your brain to empathy. It shrinks that part of your brain. And so I'm just very skeptical of people who achieve great deals of power who aren't being incredibly intentional about how to keep seeking out humility, um, how that's going to play out in a human experience. And so that's just true of all like government, all of that, especially I think in the church, it just becomes a very dangerous game that I don't have any desire to get better at. And so I just per, on a personal sense, and I think as somebody in ministry, I can relate this with pastors on a personal sense, I would really caution people to not seek powerful ministries, but effective ones. And if we're looking to make an impact, if we're looking for influence and to be effective, we can have that without having massive churches, right? Yeah. I you don't mean, need power to be effective. I think where things get really tricky nowadays is I think as a general statement, the boomer generation really was excited about bigger is better. Right. I, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, just, I, I'm afraid to ask Heather, are you a I'm millennial? I'm a millennial. Yeah, I'm okay. 34. I'm an old man. I'm 49. Um, Gen X, um, some would argue the best music ever in the 80s. <laughs> um, but I, I don't think we're as motivated by that. And I might be wrong. But what's interesting now is is it's not bigger structures, but it is bigger platform. It, yeah. it is, there is a whole new thing of, I call it curated authenticity. It looks authentic, but it's very polished. You know, some of the Instagram influencer type stuff. Right, right, right. Is is that not just a a reiteration of the same problem? Yes. <laughs> I think it's all deeply problematic. And so... I just think that there's things we have to do if we're getting online. And it, actually, we can tie this back to communication. In communication, one of the greatest social science papers ever written is called The Strength of Weak Ties. And essentially, that whole premise says we focus all of our energy on strong ties, people with whom we have really deep emotional bonds and connections. But it's actually weak ties that make a greater impact on our life. So my approach to social media is to really pay attention to the person. If I am going to stop because Beth Moore comments on my post, I had better also stop for the person who has two followers. And I actually dislike when people say, I just saw somebody tweet this the other day, and I understand the thought process because I think they think it's a bot or something where people are like, if you don't have like 200 followers, I don't follow you back. I just, I don't get that. And I see people say that a lot, like, oh, what is your criteria for following people back? Man, for me, it's just, I follow back anybody who's nice to me. If you are nice to me <laughs> and you take the time to comment and engage with me, I will probably, if I keep, if I notice it, I'll follow you back. And I want to make sure I'm responding back to you. And, but that's what social media, by the way, is supposed to be. Social media is inherently social. It's supposed to be a social place, not just a platform where I extol all of my wisdom, but spending time and energy retweeting other people, commenting on what's happening in somebody else's life, 
right? The strength of weak ties. Every single tie matters, whether it's somebody in a deep personal connection or somebody with a less impactful role in your life because you just see them on Twitter. Actually, it isn't always quality over quantity. Sometimes lots of quantity makes us feel safe and secure and has a better well-being too. Making sure I stop for the coffee barista when I pull into Starbucks and she talks to me, that matters. That weak tie changes my day. So how do we show appreciation and dignity and value to people, especially on these platform type social media adventures? And I, I, I just think we have to take, a to take time to pause and see what's going on in other people's lives and make sure it's not just you, 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 you. Heather, I want to run something by you. I'd be curious your take. When I first, I, I've been in church ministry 25 years, and uh, 15 of them, I was in some kind of associate role as a youth minister or a, 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 I did crisis intervention work in Las Vegas. 16 years ago, I stepped into the lead pastor role, the, the primary communicator, I guess you would call mm -hmm, it, for the mm -hmm. church. And I remember early in being a lead pastor, 15 years ago, I sat down with an old-timer preacher. He'd been, he'd been a preacher forever. And it was almost like he was incapable of having a dialogue. We sat down for lunch, but his conversation was taking us to a curated place. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so exaggerated that all his points had the same letter. It wasn't quite to that point, but it was a sermon. Like, he had preached so much that he had forgotten how to dialogue. I, mm. That was my assessment. And I remember I was like 32 thinking, God forbid the day that that happens to me. But the longer I'm a preacher, the more social anxiety I get hmm. in a public setting because I'm always wearing more than one hat with everybody in my congregation, whether I want to or not. Like sometimes somebody, I've had this happen, someone will come over for Christmas, Christmas Day. My pastor hat is off, but they've put it on my head again. Right. And over time, it, it's a struggle to keep being exactly human-sized um, I, I, I keep having to fight against this caricature. I don't know how you hear that through a communication lens, but I'd love to get your reaction to that, particularly, Heather, because your husband, Seth, is a pastor. So you yeah. you see some of these power dynamics as well. Yeah. And in communication, we would say we respond to one another according to the roles we are playing. And that happens more so with weaker ties. So the closer we get to people, the more likely we are to say, okay, I'm no longer acting in my role, but as an individual. And of course, this, I think it, I think what I've seen with pastors is people have a need to want somewhere to aspire to spiritually, right? I want to believe that if I do the right things and read enough scripture and say the right prayers, I can get to be you. And then everything will make sense. And so I think that that creates a really unhealthy dynamic for a pastor who is very aware that you kind of never graduate from needing to figure things out, right? Or from struggles, or from fear, or from doubt. So even if... I've achieved this worldly sense of success or power or whatever. I'm still largely the same person. I'm still a human being. I just have sometimes better strategies. 
at least I can say that for myself. I think I've developed better strategies to deal with my anxiety or my fears or my doubts than I used to have, but I still have them. I've yet to ever graduate from them. I think my husband would say the same about himself. So it can be, yeah, I think it's, you don't want to disappoint the people around you who are hoping that if they can just read a little bit more scripture or memorize a few more sermons or read a few more books, then they'll have this all figured out and they'll never doubt again. That would be great if we all achieved that level of spiritual maturity where we just, we were always on solid ground and and maybe you have, I haven't, I know my husband hasn't. And what did my husband just say to me recently? Um, we were on a walk, we were walking because that's what we do. And I just remember he, I thought this was so good. He was like, what if more than like trying to get to any particular destination is us just being intentional with how we do the journey? Is us just trying to have integrity, even for in this moment in our marriage, us having integrity with how we treat each other and speak to each other and live out where we're at. What if that's the entire point? So even on the bad days where nothing's going right, the only thing I try to control is how I respond to it. And then you're never really behind. Right? It's really, in many ways, the thesis of your latest book, I think, as I'm listening you to think you so? flesh that out. <laughs> What's your take? It sounds like my understanding is the book is all about your integrity and character in the wings. Yeah. yeah, I have come to believe that God doesn't need more talented people. I think talent can be easily given. I think he can multiply what you give him. Um, But what he does need is people of character and of integrity and people who are willing to show up for one person. Um, So essentially the whole premise of the book is who we are when it's not our turn is actually more important than who we will be when it is. And And it's always your turn. It's always your turn to show up. It is always your turn to have integrity. It is always your turn to make sure that the per- whatever is in your hand, how do you serve that faithfully? Even if it's small, how do I serve faithfully with what is in my hand? And I, I have personally found so much purpose in that, in just saying, you know what, if the greatest thing I ever do with my life is be a teacher on this campus to these students. What an honor. That's what's in my hand. And so how do I show up right here with whatever my pay level is at? How do I show up as if this is the most important thing I will ever do with my entire life? I have, I have found so much purpose and peace in that. And I have found for myself where I feel like, oh, I'm not in my purpose or I don't have peace. It's because I'm looking way too far ahead instead of just looking at what's in my hand and saying, how do I steward this faithfully today? It's give us this day, our daily bread, right? We should know it, but yet it's so much harder to actually live out. (laughs) Well, and I think that's right, especially in a culture that is, is designed to keep us hungry and unsatisfied. Right. right. I mean, that's part of it is we are being discipled by this culture that that we live in. Heather, I think the first thing that struck me as I first kind of heard your voice and started to follow your thinking was the way that you always allow context in your communication, not just content. 
I'm thinking about the tweet that's pinned to your wall right now about the student that came in with a 1.3 or a 1.6 GPA, mm-hmm. graduated with high honors simply because she now had a bed. Like mm-hmm. it was the first time in her life she had her own bed. It seems to me that's part of what is your your power as a professor is creating a safe place for context to inform content. I'd love to yeah. hear, hear your reaction to that. It's funny you say that in communication, the number one, like every communication class will tell you content is king. At the end of the day, content is king. I think you're right. I think context is king. You are a different person based on the context. And I feel like that's, that's actually very humbling. And that's how, even if we're somebody who has a lot of opportunities and has reached a certain level of power status, it's very important to remember that context is everything. The best way I can illustrate this, and then we can make this applications to other things, but in this famous Princeton study, it's in the book, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, famous Princeton study where pastors are on their way to go preach um, a sermon on the Good Samaritan. You're right? hurting, I know where this is going. You're, already, yeah. you're, just, you're here to hurt me today. <laughs> and, well, no, I think it's actually helpful, right? Yeah. So they're on their way to preach the Good Samaritan. And if the person tells them, you better hurry or you're going to be late, as they walk, then they plant somebody who's like laying in an alley, moaning, looking for help. And pastors, it was most of the pastors would walk right past that person on their way to preach a sermon on the Good Samaritan. But the pastors who stopped were the ones who were first primed by saying, hey, you're going to get there a little bit early. You have a few extra minutes. So why don't you head on over right now? You'll get there early. It'll be great. And then when they see the person, they stop. So it's not that seminarians or pastors are evil people inflated by power and narcissism. and It's that when we go through life rushing, we miss the context that's all around us, right? And so, so much of our choices really are dependent on the context that we find ourselves in. And for me, that's helped me be very connected to myself and the people around me because I stopped believing. I used, oh my goodness, I was the worst. I used to believe there were good and bad people. Very, very clear. I used to really think everything was very black and white um, but then I met more people and I found more contacts and I realized that some things are right most of the time, but maybe not this time, right? Depending on the person and their experience and their context. And it just gave me a better understanding of the world around me and has made me, I think, really passionate about trying to open other people's eyes to this as well. Because I'll, I'll teach a class and I'll have 35 kids all at the exact same private school, Christian, same time of day, same state. We've all ended up in this room, but yet we've come from totally different contexts. And so as we listen to the exact same information, it's striking different people very differently. And so how do we just stop and say, tell me about the context by which you see this? One of my favorite quotes, and this is why I love the education process. My favorite quote by Sidney J. Harris is, um, the purpose of education is to turn mirrors into windows. And that's what 
higher education did for me. I think that's what it's supposed to train people to do is to not just look in a mirror and say, how do I see this? And how does this affect my context? But to look out the window and say, okay, there's tons of different people. How may they see this differently? And how can that inform how I see it? it it's just this really beautiful process that allows you to constantly keep growing based on the people who are around you and come into your sphere. Yeah, I, I could imagine some people listening to you and just saying to themselves, boy, that sounds like a lot of work or that, that sounds really messy. But I, I would simply make the argument that you're doing all this work anyway, one way or another. Mm. It's just a matter of whether it's reactive or whether it's deliberative. I, I think, Heather, the, probably the largest leadership lesson of my life, I think, is probably if I really genuinely want to help someone and be fully present to them, I better be present to myself first. Mm. I, I think I had this twisted version of selflessness that I actually believe is selflessness. And it's really not like that others focused thing. But I, that was the, that was the lesson that was forged in me as a chaplain is when you are in the room with a dying person, you cannot be neutral. You are having an experience um, I was a newlywed when I was a chaplain, and I remember getting the beat to rush down to the ER because an ambulance or a helicopter is about to show up. There's going to be someone on a gurney, and then a minute or two later, there's going to be a family. And I would consciously beg God that it wouldn't be my wife on the gurney, mm. which is a completely human, natural thing to ask God for. But then when it wasn't my wife, I'm now celebrating and you can't be present to someone in pain while you're throwing a party. Mm. But if you're not aware of that, you won't be present to them at all, you know? And, um, that, that's the challenge I face as a pastor is believing I have the emotional capacity to be as present as God requires to the people that are asking for it. Uh, when we wrap up, I'll be making a phone call to, a young mum who just discovered her husband has stage four cancer. Oh, man. And she's freaking out. And a lot of what I'm doing is managing myself so I can be present. Um, mm. It's There's no question in there, but that's my no, response it, to what you're saying. But you know what I would say? What you've started in me is just that. That's something that I need to work on in myself. And I think this is a flaw of many Christian women is to put yourself last. Yes. As a white man, I would say yes, that's true. Yeah. And so that's something, even just listening to you talk about that, it was just very convicting of, yeah, I need to make sure that I am serving myself too and know where I'm coming from because that's what's going to keep me healthy as I continue to serve others. I do think it is a generalization that Christians who are in some kind of a caring industry, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I think you and I are both in, whether you're pastoring or teaching, I think we believe that focusing on others is selfless, and I, I've come to believe it's not. It's actually, what is it? It's like a distraction from the more difficult work mm. of being present to myself and, and present to God, I think. But, Heather, I, I do quite a lot of work with Christian women and men in leadership. And I've got two questions for you, um, specific to men and women. It, it's, it's, it's alarmed me that when I do inner critic work with people, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, 
It's only ever women that say, say that their inner critic has two messages. You're not enough and you're too much. Mm. And I don't have men that say that. Usually we say you're not enough. There's very few men that ever say you're too much. You need to shrink yourself down. Right. What's your reaction to that dualistic message? There's so much into that, right? I think women go through life, even just if we look on a basic level, you go through life being told you want to be good enough so that someone will pick you. And so it's a constant performance of how do I, how do I, how do I, how can I be good enough that someone will pick me to spend their life with? And that's where my value comes. And that's since we're little kids, that socialization, I mean, oh, wait, you, you, you go through middle school and high school waiting to be good enough for people to pick you. And I think that that really affects how you see yourself way into adulthood. Whereas men typically go through life saying, who's good enough for me to pick, right? So there's just very different power structure that happens right from socialization as children yeah. that I think impacts us greatly. And then I know for myself, I have spent a lot of my Christian experience up until probably the last three years trying to be good enough for God to pick me and trying to earn his approval and his presence. And it is still very difficult for me to believe that God just loves me outside of what I produce for him. Yeah. That is a very difficult concept for me to accept. And I've also just recently discovered that I have a habit of even like somebody asked me recently, like, oh, let's talk about some of your, your like painful moments. And I was like, "Mm." because most of my painful moments, I immediately feel like I have to reframe into, oh, well, this is what this painful moment actually taught me instead of just like sitting in the fact that this was horrible. Right. And I think I do that to try to even still protect God and his image because I don't ever want to say to somebody else that God wasn't good enough in whatever painful moment I was experiencing. Right. So I don't, I I think that this is something that's very true of a lot of female experiences in Christianity. I don't have all the answers as to how we got here. I just know that I've experienced it. And when I talk about it, I, I just did a women's conference last weekend and I, women are always like, Oh my, yes. This constant um, need to reframe and to be positive and to seek approval from God. And it's, it can be very exhausting. Yeah. My second question is, as a person of color, what would you want me as a white lead pastor to know that I may or may not know? Mm. It's a big question. I think in some of it, you, some of it you would have even just said by asking. Um, I think what I would want white pastors to know is that there's a lot that you don't know. And that even when you ask, depending on what mood somebody's in, you might not get a, a true response, right? So when it, comes to, when it comes to race, like these things are journeys and it takes time and there's going to be, I, I think people of color want to see a pattern over time. I'm going to see fruit. Yeah. Instead of just, cause I just, I, my mind immediately went to like after George Floyd, white pastors calling their 
black members and saying, what can I do better? Right. And that's one. And I, and I think a lot of people appreciated that. And that's one conversation, but how do we continue that conversation? Well, and so even, I, you know, hearing from many African-Americans who said, look, I, I don't have time to educate you. Like there was also right. that kind of weariness, right? Like right. it's not my job to then inform you to something you weren't aware of before or, yeah. Yeah. And so I want to speak to that for one second, just cause I have a really, I have a dear loved one who just went through an issue at work, um, at a hospital and they're a doctor where somebody used the N word mm. and then the other people in the room came to this person that I love and said, how do we handle that next time? Uh, we feel like we didn't do the right thing. How, and it's like, they're not the diversity and inclusion <laughs> representative on, on that healthcare facility. Why don't you spend time? So I think that's true. What I would say is spend time, do the work, read some books, educate yourself. Yeah. And don't put that burden always on people of color. Cause sometimes I think just like everybody, everybody's so exhausted right now that they may not even want to get into that conversation, but what are some a really great book that I just went through this year was cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Highly recommend. That book was super informative to me to just understanding the long history of racial injustice in this country. But start reading and see where how can I learn more so that I can show a pattern of behavior with people of color that I care as we have these conversations. Heather, as you uh, have been warned, uh, I'd like to put all my guests through a gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions. Okay. And uh, before I do, this gauntlet is brought to us by CapableLife.me. You know, so many people are on the emotional health journey. A lot of people are big fans of Enneagram. I think Enneagram is great. But uh, my field is helping us notice our reactivity. Okay. When, When we're getting reactive... And when we're seeing reactivity being contagious in a group, so CapableLife.me is the online community with resources. There's a confidential discussion forum. There's monthly Zooms. Anyone who wants to check it out, you can check it out and and join today. And Heather, let's kick off the gauntlet. Just a handful of questions on anxiety. Here's Here's the first one. It's pretty typical for most of us that the same situations generate anxiety. In other words, our anxiety over time, if we notice it, becomes predictable. Would you be willing just to give us one situation in your life that you know is a guarantee it's going to make you anxious? Oh, um, if I'm waiting on an answer, does that fit? If I'm in that right now. So I I had said before we got on, um, I am waiting to find out or I'm waiting to find a house. And I really felt like God had called me to come back to Michigan. So I moved here. And so I'm trusting and believing that he has a home for me as well, because he knows what I need when I come. And so the typical anxiety that I face is, will God show up for me? Mm. And that's a reoccurring theme in my life is, will God show up for me? Um, Because I told everybody that he would, and will he actually do it? Mm. 
I'm curious about that last thing you said. I told everybody he would. That Does that connect to this idea that you are, for better or worse, God's PR person in some ways? <laughs> I And this is true. I'll say this about myself. This is true of anything that I really care about. I tell everybody. So I'm also a huge Taylor Swift fan. I'm obsessed with Taylor Swift. Everybody knows that about me. If you take a class with me, you are going to hear about Taylor Swift. Likewise, I Christianity and the gospel and my relationship with Christ is with, like bar none the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. And so I will tell everybody. And it's not that I'm trying to intentionally be a certain way. It's just that that's my personality. I love telling people about things that really matter to me. Yeah. We're way off the anxiety gauntlet now. Well, yeah, I'm no, sorry. You're the, first, you're the first guest ever to kick me off the gauntlet, but I, I can roll with some T-Swizzle. Okay. What's, uh, <laughs> what's, what's your favorite era of hers? Of oh, music my goodness. Style? No, so right now, I think she's putting out her, I think she is her, her best self right now. I folk think she is really, oh, my goodness. The Folklore and Evermore, I think, are fantastic albums. However, next month she's doing, um, she's redone Red, and I cannot wait to yep. see the new songs that we're going to get with that. Yeah, have you seen her? She did Red with Vince Gill and Alison Krauss and uh, Sam Bush and Bluegrass. Have you seen that rendition? She took I all haven't. the pop out of it. Oh, it's magical, Heather. Come on. Yeah, so uh, are you familiar with the Bluegrass world or, or the no. future worlds? That... So now okay. I'm going to YouTube this afterwards. Yeah, yeah. so Alison Krauss would be considered one I know of the her. Finest. Okay, yep. And then Vince Gill would be a country star. Okay. And he can sing higher than any girl. It's just okay. Vince Gill's married to Amy Grant, and he okay. sings the high harmony when they duet. I'm really digressing. But uh, Taylor I'm brought them together. Yeah, with uh, Sam Bush on the mandolin, and they redid Red. And it's it's a little treat for you during the gaunt, little break. Thank the you gauntlet. so much. Yeah. You just made my day. Yeah, excellent. Um, okay, Heather, the second question is... Um, our body always tells us the truth. It never lies to us. But I do think we struggle to listen to it. So where in your body do you first notice anxiety? Would it be a spinning mind? Would it be a racing heart? Or would it be a tightening gut for you? So by the time I actually notice I have a problem, we are so far gone. Um, so what happens to me is I get horrible um, gastroenteritis, where it feels like I am about to give birth. I mean, just horrible wrenching of my stomach. And that will last sometimes for about 90 minutes. And I have had that. Oh, boy, I get it probably a couple times a year. So that's when I always stop and say, Oh, we are pushing way too hard. Yeah, I am actually under an incredible amount of stress and my body is trying to tell me help. And so I say, hey, stomach, thank you so much for trying to protect me and keep me safe. I appreciate that. And here's the things I'm going to do differently. Yeah, just as somebody who coaches in anxiety, I'm just picturing that you've already driven through a number of the warning signs before the cliff. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And I do. And I keep doing it. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, and another thing we work on here is family of origin. Um, I think as a communication expert, you know, you would have done some work in this area that we, we carry our family script into every engagement. I wonder if, Heather, would you be willing just to give us one asset that you've inherited from your family? You're like, man, this is a real gift. And then maybe one that's a liability. Oh, asset, I would say storytelling. 
that is just a, my dad, I think is the greatest storyteller I ever knew. And that's something that has really yeah. impacted the way I tweet and the way I communicate and the way I write. I, I always try to use stories in communication. Um, liability, you know, is we do it on our own. I think that's something that I saw growing up was that, you know, strong people, they do it themselves. And I am trying to undo a lot of that in these last couple of years. Cause I, because I have <laughs> gastroenteritis and I have no choice. I have learned to say, Oh, I'm not supposed to do it on my own. And where is my team and how am I checking in with them and who am I accountable to? Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so good, Heather. And you're a young mum too. Aren't you? I think yes. you have three kids. I have three so, children. Yeah. Insane amounts of energy output at that stage of life, right? It's, yes, it it's is. Just a, it's a total marathon. Yeah. Uh, here's my last question is the, the theory that perfect love casts out fear. It, it's, it's impossible to be in the grip of anxiety and in the grip of love at the same time. One displaces the other. So when is a time in your life where you feel most fully and completely loved? Definitely when I am tucking in my kids at night. That, and I know it because my whole body responds to it. So I try to really take that in. Lately, it's really hit me that my daughter is nine. So lately I've realized, oh, I have like five, five really good years where this is still happening before, you know, they're just at a new stage and graduating from high school or whatever. And so I'm really trying to not rush through those moments. I'm, I'm a rusher. I'm always moving to the next thing. And so I'm trying to be intentional and say, Hey, I feel peace right now. And so let me take this in. Let's stretch this out. Let me lay in this bed with them for the next 30 minutes. Why not? Heather Thompson Day. Uh, for folks on Twitter, she's one of the best followers you can have on Twitter. She, as, as she said, she's passionate about storytelling, and uh, she's so good at it. Uh, you can follow Heather at her website, heatherthompsonday.com. Her latest book, It's Not Your Turn. Heather, thank you so much for joining me on the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Thank you, Steve. An honor. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 